Hello, I'm Alan Stanford, and welcome to our final Lear in Longford. Thou art a traitor, false to thy gods, thy brother and thy father. Conspire against this high, illustrious prince. Come, let's away to prison. We two alone will sing like birds of the cage. Take them away! Like a desert needs rain, like a town needs a I hold you but a subject of this war, not as a brother. Like a drift in its Not so hot. Edmund, I arrest thee on capital treason. Call by the trumpet. I need you. Thou art a traitor, false to thy gods, thy brother and thy father. A most cold spotted traitor. Trumpet! He hath commissioned from thy wife and me to hang Cordelia in the prison to lay the blame her own despair. Oh, you are men of stone! Why should a dog, a horse, a rat have life and thou no breath at all? You undo this, but over the last three weeks, we've been working our way through Shakespeare's remarkable play, King Lear trying to examine some of the key points in it as the play progresses. We've looked in the first program through the, the opening section of the play and established the two principal storylines, the story of Lear, the story of Gloucester, and how they complement each other. In our second program, we travelled on Lear's journey from uh, what I described as the top of the staircase to the very bottom, from having absolute power to having nothing. We looked in the third programme at the Gloucester story, where Edmund, who starts with nothing, slowly works his way up a staircase to the point when he nearly has everything. So in this, the final programme, we're going to try and bring those two things together and just examine a few of the moments at the conclusion of the play, when the storyline finally comes to its end. And to help me, as before, we've had uh, students from St Mel's College and Skullwear in Longford, uh, students from uh, Carrigallan Vocational School in County Leitrim and students from our temporary home here in Moyne Community School. Today, all the parts are going to be read by students from Skolwira, and uh, Skolwira is a girls' school, so we're going to get our revenge on Shakespeare. Shakespeare's plays were always acted at the uh, time of writing by men. Women did not appear on the stage, so our small revenge is that all the parts today are going to be read by women. <laughs> So where are we in the play? Gloucester has completed his journey. He's been brought to reconciliation with his son Edmund, and that reconciliation finally finishes him. He dies. Lear, who had been travelling around in the open air like a madman, raving and raging, slowly reached a point of discovery of himself, of realisation that all he was was the pure man, that he had no need of anything other than himself. He, in fact, reached a point, I suppose, of, of contentment. But the madness had, in a sense, given him a clear vision of where he was, who he was, and what he was. He saw the world in truth. He saw the world as a place of corruption. He saw power as a corrupting influence. And now, needed nothing but love, a new word. He needed true love, the true love of somebody. At the beginning of the play, he'd asked that question, which of you shall we say doth love us most? And those who said they did were lying. The only true love that was declared for him at the beginning of the play was the one he rejected. But at this moment, he now needs that more than anything. That love is going to have 
the healing effect on his mind, the discovery that he is truly loved. We're going to take a look at a scene from Act 4, Act 4, Scene 7, where Lear finally wakes up after a very long sleep to be with his daughter Cordelia. And to help me in this, Lear is going to be read by Sinead McKenna, Cordelia by Lisa Donaghy, and The Doctor will be read by Danica Wilson. You do me wrong to take me out of the grave. Thou art a soul in bliss, but I am bound upon a wheel of fire that mine own tears do scald like molten lead. Sir, do you know me? You are a spirit, I know. Where did you die? Still, still far wide. Still, still far wide. Leo wakes up not even aware of where he is, not even able at that moment to recognise Cordelia. He's scarce awake. Let him alone a while. Where have I been? Where am I? Fair daylight. I am mightily abused. I should e'en die with pity to see another thus. I know not what to say. I will not swear these are my hands. Let's see. I feel this pinprick. Would I were assured of my condition. Oh, look upon me, sir, and hold your hand in benediction over me. You must not kneel. Pray do not mock me. I'm a very foolish, fond old man. Four score and upward, not an hour more or less. And, to deal plainly, I fear I am not in my perfect mind. Methinks I should know you, and know this man, yet I am doubtful, for I am mainly ignorant what place this is. And all the skill I have remembers not these garments, nor I know not where I did lodge last night. Do not laugh at me, for, as I am a man, I think this lady to be my child, Cordelia. And with that, he finally admits recognition. It's an interesting scene because within this there is a sense of shame, of guilt. And he has to express the discovery of humility. I'm a very foolish, fond old man. Remember, fond in Elizabethan terminology means silly, stupid. The recognition that all he is is a silly, foolish old man. He's discovered humility. He's discovered that he is not the most important person in the world, that he is just like anyone else just like as he did on the heath with Mad Tom in the storm, realising that he's just a poor, bare-forked animal. Cordelia treats him with love. Cordelia raises him up. Cordelia is the one who wants to kneel to him, the one who wants to give him back the dignity that he lost. And so thank you for Sinead, Lisa and Danica's reading. Thank you. My name is Claire McWilliams. I am an English teacher in Mount Anvil Secondary School. This question is taken from the Leaving Cert paper 2002. Cordelia plays a very important role in the play King Lear. To analyse correctly this question, the students should use the following guidelines. Describe Cordelia's relationship to Lear, her truthful reaction to his foolish love test in Act 1, Scene 1. What shall Cordelia do, love and be silent? And the implications of her expulsion for the tragedy. Discuss the importance of her character as seen in Act 4, Scene 4 and Scene 7 and Act 5, Scene 3. Stating her impact on the plot, her attributes, seek, seek for him and her portrayal of themes. Consider the reactions of other characters to her like Kent, Lear, France, she is herself a dowry and the fool to broaden your analysis of the character Cordelia and the question asked. Refer to her role and function in the play. She epitomises goodness and loyalty. She challenges evil. She upholds values. She is an admirable contrast to her despicable siblings. She evokes our pity and sympathy. Use plenty of quotes in your answer to support your observations Avoid summarising the play. My name is Emma Hayes and I'm a student in Wesley College and I'll be talking about the character of Cordelia in King Lear. Cordelia's dramatic purpose, on stage and off, is to provide the audience with an archetype of perfection. This enables them to compare and contrast her perfect nature with all the other imperfect and flawed characters in King Lear. Amidst a family of selfish and monstrous characters, she remains ever true to herself, this is first glimpsed, love and be silent, and then made wholly known, I cannot heave my heart into my mouth, in the opening scene of Act One. 
This scene holds great significance for the character of Cordelia. It is the scene where her truth and honesty were sneered at. Nothing will come of nothing. This character provides a much-needed balance for the basic construction of the play. Cordelia's main purpose is to present a figure that is honest and loyal, who will form the plot of the play. Shakespeare could not have written King Lear as a tragedy without Cordelia present to fill all the requirements necessary for this to occur. After Cordelia's death in Act 5, Scene 3, Lear is lost. He dies of a heart broken by his sense of loss, no continuity. Cordelia's death puts an end to all things good and pure and brings a finality to the play. There's nothing left. Essentially, a tragedy involves a journey towards self-knowledge, insight and understanding. King Lear fills all these requirements. Lear's gradual insight and understanding lead to his self-knowledge and Cordelia is there to ignite this spark of understanding and provide Lear with the necessary information to lead him on his journey. However, Cordelia is, as Shakespeare so succinctly puts it, a mere player on the world stage. They have their exits and entrances and one man in his time plays many parts. Yes, she does play many parts. She is first a wife to France, a daughter to Lear, a sister to Goneril and Regan. Yet on a second level, she is a necessary figure in which Shakespeare explores in depth a world of goodness, truth and honesty. He achieves this through his sheer brilliance as even though Cordelia speaks a mere 118 lines in the entire play, her presence, even when she is off stage, lingers and is reflected and contrasted in the lines and actions of all the characters on stage. There is a significant yet subtle development in the character of Cordelia through King Lear that is crucial to the plot development. We meet a truthful, humble daughter in the opening scene. You have begot me, bred me, loved me. Yet there are also clear indications of a girl who is very sure of herself and of who she is. I love your majesty according to my bond, no more nor less. In Act 1, Cordelia's reputation of perfection can be somewhat questioned by those unfamiliar with the outcome of the play and of Lear's selfish, dramatic nature. Lear expects Cordelia's love to be the climax of the declarations in the love test, a test that can only lead to strife and pain. Lear is vindictive towards Cordelia's honest response and employs monstrous imagery to her. After she is banished by Lear and goes to France with her husband, we cannot refrain from considering the extent to which Lear might have remained sane if Cordelia had acted in the same fashion as Goneril and Regan did. When Cordelia returns to England and is reunited with her father, we detect a definite change in her character. She still has, of course, her qualities of truth, purity and love. But yet this time around there is something more. Something that can be described as self-assurance. I personally find this change reassuring and relieving. The contrasting change between Lear and Cordelia preceding the love test is proof of Cordelia's strong, assured character and Lear's weak and selfish one. I think Cordelia is a much stronger character in her reconciliation scene than her opening one. This makes her death so unexpected and unpredictable. I would have believed that the outcome of the play would result in the death of Lear and the happy ever after scenario involving Cordelia and France. However, this is, primarily, a tragedy and it would not be so without the development and improvement of Cordelia's character, which emphasises the horrific tragedy of her death. The language given to Cordelia by Shakespeare in King Lear is distinctive in quite an unusual way. Her characteristic feature is emphasised as quiet economical speech, soft, gentle and low, is how Lear remembers her voice. The audience, I feel, would remember it more as soft, gentle, yet determined. When Cordelia does speak, however, her language is visual, cannot heave my heart into my mouth, and passionately strong-willed. It is no vicious blot, murder, or foulness, no unchaste action or dishonoured step that hath deprived me of your grace. Her language allows us to unfold many different characteristics from her personality. In the reconciliation scene, Act 4, Scene 6, Cordelia addresses Lear in a way that solidifies for the audience her love for him. Yet she does so while Lear is still asleep. Let this kiss repair those violent harms that my two sisters have in thy reverence made. But when he is awake, she finds it difficult to express her love to the same extent and can speak only in monosyllables. Sir, do you know me? Still, still, far wide. This type of language is formal and impersonal, far too much so for a daughter to address her father. Is Cordelia trying to make a point to Lear that he is not so easily forgiven? Her only response to Lear's emotional, heartfelt speech, 
I am a very foolish, fond old man. Is so I am. After all this time apart, Cordelia fails to clarify her feelings for Lear to his face. Cordelia's influence on the overall effect of the play is out of all proportion to the very few lines she contributes. But it is Shakespeare's specific use of vivid, emotional language on Cordelia's part which enables this effect to take place. Cordelia and the Fool never appear together. Now, there are a lot of theories about that. For instance, uh, was it the fact that the Fool and Cordelia were played by one and the same person? I personally am uh, not in favour of that theory because the Fool is very much an older man. Uh, I always get the feeling from the Fool that he is a contemporary of Lear, and there is a point in the play when only the three old mates are left together, Lear, the Fool, and Kent. So I've always considered the Fool to be a contemporary of Lear's, not the young daughter. Now, it's possible that I'm wrong there, um, but it doesn't seem right in the script to me. I think the point that uh, Cordelia and the Fool don't meet is to do with the fact that they are complementary, that Cordelia is of his family, the only one who will tell him the truth. When he banishes her, the only person left to tell him the truth is the Fool. So the Fool takes over that role in the play, that he becomes the mouthpiece of truth, and his single function is to keep explaining to Lear what the truth actually is, that he is nothing. He's given away everything, and he's come to the point of nothing. Our next scene happens in Act 5, Scene 3, which is the great final movement of the play. If the play were a symphony, this would be the great last movement. And so much happens. It's as though all the stories, all the themes, all the ideas of the play all come together in this one great movement. Lear has been reunited with Cordelia and is happy. Shakespeare is a very clever playwright. He doesn't write fairy stories with happy endings. He writes a tragedy. And the wonderful thing about knowing it's a tragedy is you know it's going to end badly. For Lear, who was once the most powerful king, to end up as just nobody, nothing, a pauper, that would be bad, that would be tragic, but it gets worse. Lear is happy to have nothing because he's got the one thing in the world that he values, the love of that one special child. He can be content for the rest of his life with nothing else but her. And we see in this rather magic little scene his contentment at spending the rest of his life in a prison cell with nothing. That would be perfection because he's discovered humility and love and the fact that nothing is all he needs. Now to read this, we have Erica Elkershi as Lear, Sharon Devine as Cordelia, and Angela Butler as Edmund. Some officers take them away, good guard, until their greater pleasures first be known that are to censure them. We are not the first who with best meaning have incurred the worst. For thee, oppressed king, I am cast down. Myself could else out frown false fortunes frown. Shall we not see these daughters and these sisters? No, no, no. Come, let's away to prison. We two alone will sing like birds in the cage. When thou dost ask me blessing, I'll kneel down and ask of thee forgiveness. I'll kneel down and ask of thee forgiveness. Lear realises that's where he's at. The Lear at the beginning of the play could never have conceived of doing such a thing. The Lear at the end of the play, having travelled that enormous journey down that enormous staircase to nothingness, realises that the one thing he really must do is beg forgiveness. So we live and pray and sing and tell old tales and laugh at gilded butterflies and hear poor rogues talk of court news. And we'll talk with them too, who loves and who wins, who's in, who's out, and take upon us the mystery of things as if we were God's spies. And we'll wear out in a walled prison, pacts and sects of great ones that ebb and flow by the moon. And we'll wear out in a walled prison, pacts and sects of great ones that ebb and flow by the moon. He really has diminished himself to being so insignificant to become as God's spies, to look at the world from a prison cell and to laugh at it. The ability to laugh at all the absurdities of the world, the gilded butterflies, to talk about court news, who's in, we do it all the time. Every gossip newspaper does it. That's what we do. We, first thing we do, we get the Sunday paper, look at the back page and see who's doing what to who, who's in, who's out. 
take upon us the mystery of things as if we were God's spies. He now looks at the world with a completely different eye. It amuses him. Take them away. Upon such sacrifices, my Cordelia, the gods themselves throw incense. Have I caught thee? He that parts us shall bring a brand from heaven and fire us hence like foxes. Wipe thine eyes. The good year shall devour them, flesh and fell. Ere they shall make us weep, we'll see them starved first. The good years shall devour them, flesh and fell. Ere they shall make us weep, we'll see them starved first. I mean, that's a wonderful note of defiance. You can't make me cry anymore. You've made me cry enough. He's saying it to the world. He's saying it to everybody in power. He's saying it to everybody who's treated him badly. He's saying it to the whole of creation. I'm not crying anymore. I'm happy. I'm content. I'm with the one person I want to be with. So Shakespeare leaves us at this moment with a wonderful sense of optimism for Lear. He's found humility. He's found contentment. He is settled. He is at peace. But this is Shakespeare, and Shakespeare won't leave him like that. So, thanks to Erica, Sharon, and Angie. My name is Brendan Masterson from St. Mel's College, Longford. My favourite quote from King Lear is, I'm a man more sinned against than sinning. Lear says this in the storm scene in Act 3, Scene 2. It is fair to say that Lear has sinned and has fatal flaws. We see his harsh treatment of his favourite daughter, Cordelia. He humiliates her and banishes her in a towering rage. When Kent stepped in to defend her, he was told not to come between the dragon and his wrath. He is arrogant, proud and selfish. His behaviour is very childish at times, but Shakespeare does want us to focus exclusively on this part of his personality. He persuades us that Lear's punishment is much more than his sins have deserved. Old age, fatherhood and kinship should be sacred, but this means nothing to Regan and their associates. Their dishonesty and monstrous ingratitude and cruelty are a bigger sin against their old father, the king. Their behaviour to him is unnatural and savage, even though he gave them all. When Lear says, I'm a man more sinned against than sinning, he is in the early stages of a long and painful journey to self-knowledge. He's a lot to learn. My name is Keir McBrien and I'm from Skullwara Longford. In my opinion, the animal imagery in King Lear leaves the most lasting impression. The animal imagery of the play is mainly of the predatory kind, the animals who prey on others. For example, monsters of the deep, the tiger, the vulture, the serpent or the dragon. In the final scenes, people are compared to such animals to show how humans are cruel to each other in Lear's degenerate kingdom. When evil enters the world, humans turn to predatory creatures. They live by natural law, not civilised law. For example, Goneril sees her sister Regan as competition, particularly for the affection of Edmund, and kills her, showing no remorse. This underlying emphasis on animal imagery centres on the vileness which humanity is capable of. This is demonstrated by Edmund as he talks of loyalty while he betrays his father to Cornwall. Therefore, Edmund goes against human nature and moves towards predatory kind. It is mainly Goneril and Regan who are seen in terms of repulsive animal images. Albany describes them as tigers, not daughters, due to the way in which they treat their father. The Fool compares Goneril to a fox to emphasise her shrewdness and Lear's naivety in transferring power to her. Goneril and Regan in particular prey on others for their own survival and self-interest. Their wicked vendettas show the violence, both physical and mental, that they inflict on their victims. Lear describes Goneril as a vulture because of her cruel actions, such as abandoning her own father. Lear accepts the very nature of man himself as he sees Tom disguised as a bedlam beggar. Is a man no more than this? Consider him well. Thou owest the worm no silk, the beast no hide, the sheep no wool, the cat no perfume. Lear suggests that our humanity is disguised by the clothes we borrow from animals. The animal imagery throughout shows how predatory human beings destroy civilization by operating through the law of the jungle and how the inevitable result for both the good and evil characters is pain, suffering and eventually death. Another aspect of this great Act 5, Scene 3 movement of the play is the conclusion of the Gloucester story. Gloucester himself is dead, 
but there's still something to be concluded. There's still a final settlement to be made. Edgar, who had been betrayed by his brother, now faces him. Edmund is almost at the position of absolute power, and it's suddenly taken from him. At the moment when he could marry Regan and almost take the crown, a betrayal happens. He's betrayed by a letter that Goneril sent to him. He's betrayed by the fact that he was part of a treason against the Duke of Albany. And suddenly, he's betrayed by his own guilt when a strange knight turns up and challenges him. And that strange knight, of course, is his brother, Edgar. That final conflict between them has to be resolved to bring that storyline to its conclusion. And for the purposes of reading this scene, we have Una Garrity reading Edgar, Sharon Devine reading Albany, and Anne O'Reilly reading Edmund. No, my name is lost. By treason's tooth bear none and canker bit. Yet am I noble as the adversary I come to cope. Now, my name is lost. What's being said at that moment, what Edgar is saying is, you took from me my birthright. You took from me that which was rightfully mine. Who I am. Can you remember that question exists elsewhere in the play? Lear asks it. Who is it that can tell me who I am? The identity, the identity of the person. It's brought back here by Shakespeare, not in a negative sense as it is in the Lear story, but in a positive sense, where Edgar is determined to re-establish his name. Which is that adversary? What's he that speaks for Edmund, Earl of Gloucester? Himself. What sayest thou to him? Draw thy sword, that if my speech offend a noble heart, thy arm may do thee justice. Here is mine. Behold, it is the privilege of mine honours, my oath and my profession. I protest, maugre thy strength, place, youth and eminence. Despite thy victor sword and fire new fortune, thy valour and thy heart, thou art a traitor. Falls to thy gods, thy brother and thy father, conspired against this high illustrious prince, and from the extremest upward of thy head, to the descent and dust below thy foot, a most toad-spotted traitor. Despite what you've done, what you've achieved, what you've set yourself up to be, no matter how much you dress yourself up in reputation, in achievement, or in fancy clothes, you're still a toad-spotted traitor. It's that same reflection that Lear has discovered. Through tattered clothes, great vices do appear. Robes and furred gowns hide all. Here, Edmund is dressed in all the strength and authority of all his achievements. But if you take all that away, underneath, he's still a traitor. And that's what Edgar is describing him as. Say thou know, this sword, this arm, and my best spirits are bent to prove upon thy heart whereto I speak. Thou liest. In wisdom I should ask thy name, but since thy outside looks so fair and warlike, and that thy tongue, some say, of breeding breeds, what safe and nicely I might well delay by rule of knighthood, I disdain and spurn. Back do I toss these treasons to thy head, with the hell-hated lie o'erwhelm thy heart, which, for they yet glance by and scarcely bruise, this sword of mine shall give them instant way, where they shall rest forever. Trumpets, speak. Edmund actually says, I should ask who you are. I should ask for the privilege of rank. I could say, no, I won't fight you. But his own ego, his own sense of self-glory beats him to it. He's prepared to challenge the world. He believes he's invulnerable. And he pays for it with his life. That story comes to the conclusion when Edmund is defeated and Edgar rightfully reasserts who he is. An interesting sideline to that. Once Edmund is defeated, once he knows that there's no hope for him, that he is in fact finished, that he's dying, he suddenly relents. He suddenly makes a decision to do something good. He's not a total villain. He suddenly agrees or decides to confess the fact that he's ordered Lear and Cordelia to be killed. But he does it too late. So thank you to Una, Sharon and Anne. My name is Alyssa Riley. I'm teaching in Santa Sabina in Sutton. Let's look at a question such as, King Lear is not a tragic hero, he is really only a victim of circumstances. Discuss. In this case, the student is being asked to take a definite point of view on the character of King Lear as a tragic hero. 
An examiner would expect that you would demonstrate your understanding of the term tragic hero in your answer. Also, you should address fully the viewpoint that Lear's downfall is of his own making. For our purposes, we will assume that the student has taken the view that Lear is basically a good person, but is the cause of his own downfall because of his flawed nature and therefore, by definition, fits the mould of a tragic hero. It would be a good idea to perhaps take a quote as a starting point for an answer. A quote like, Is man no more than this? A quote like this could form the central key idea of your essay, and the main thrust of the essay could centre around this quote. A good student would follow the quote with a few lines on how tragic drama, unlike the romantic novel, prepares both reader and audience for violence, treachery, death and an irreconcilable ending. By doing so, you have shown that you understand the genre of the play as a tragedy. In further planning your essay, a student might wish to look at the structure of the play, the two parallel plots and their mirrored themes and outcomes. Some points to consider would be the abdication of kingship is the beginning of Lear's degeneration, but it is his love test which really seals his fate. His blindness to Cordelia's love for him, his banishment of her and Kent leave him exposed to the treacherous Goneril and Regan. The subplot echoes the blindness of Lear and the similarity of the two plots is a contrivance by Shakespeare to emphasise his tragic theme. A discussion on images of tragedy could form a significant part of the essay. In particular, analysis of the symbolic significance of the tragedy on the heath would tie in nicely with the key idea of is man no more than this? Because we see Lear reduced to insanity and a highly charged language heightens the dramatic tension. I would suggest if a student has had the opportunity to see a performance of the play that they would refer to this scene as it appears on stage. This will show the examiner a clear engagement with the task. Any good essay should end with a well-written conclusion that summarises the points discussed in the essay. In summary, I would like to say that good planning is essential for answering any literature question on the Leavenstein paper, and an examiner will always recognise a well-planned answer as opposed to an unplanned, haphazard effort. My name is Ronan Matir, and I'm a student in Wesley College, and I'm going to talk about selfishness and selflessness in King Lear. King Lear deals with the extremities of human nature. In this play, Shakespeare explores many such extremities. Sanity and madness, sight and blindness, power and nothingness, and, of course, selfishness and selflessness. King Lear is based on greed and the constant want for more. Yet, at the end of the play, not a single character has gained from their greed, and every character is left with less than they had before. Even those selfless characters such as the Fool, Cordelia and Kent are affected by the greed of others and, by Act 5, Scene 3, as Lear dies alongside his dead daughter Cordelia, we are reminded that no good will ever come from greed and cravings for power and wealth. In Act 1, Scene 1, it might appear that Lear, in dividing his kingdom, is far from selfish. However, with a closer look, it is obvious that Lear has no intent in losing his power, wealth and luxuries. Lear simply wants to shake all cares and business from our age, conferring them on younger strengths. Lear's desire is to unburdened crawl to death. Lear's hopes do not, however, go to plan, and, after dividing his kingdom in two and banishing his youngest daughter, he begins his journey into madness and self-discovery. When Goneril and Regan proclaim false love for their father, it is obvious they are doing so as to receive as much of their father's kingdom as possible. Once they acquire such power, they immediately turn their backs on their father and eventually on each other. Both daughters reject their father and, after deceiving him during the love test, they then strip Lear of any remaining power and dignity. But their greed and selfishness bring them nowhere. Regan and Goneril, although married, both desire Edmund, and this eventually leads to Regan's death after Goneril poisons her. When Edmund is killed by Edgar, Goneril takes her own life and once again we are reminded that it is selfishness and greed that destroyed her and her sister, Regan. Lear is, without doubt, a selfish man, but as he journeys into madness and sees the truth, he does show signs of selflessness. On the heath in Act 3, Scene 4, Lear is concerned about his fool. He urges the fool to enter the hovel before he does. In boy, go first. Lear puts the fool ahead of himself, and this is one of the rare times in the play we see such compassion and selflessness from Lear. The most selfless character in King Lear is, in my opinion, the fool. The fool stays by Lear's side for most of the play and only leaves him when he no longer has a purpose. The fool never mentions anything to do with his own desires or ambitions with the exception of 
I'd rather be any kind of a thing than a fool. His purpose is to serve Lear, and that is exactly what he does. Kent is also a selfless character. Despite his banishment and the risk of execution, Kent remains in Britain to serve Lear and look after him, and we see such devotion in his last line of the play. My master calls me, I must not say no. Cordelia is, without a doubt, a selfless character. She suffers banishment and eventually death as a result of her devotion to Lear and her selflessness. She remains faithful to her father and forgives him on their reconciliation in Act 4, Scene 6. Cordelia plays the ultimate price for such selflessness and is hanged. Her tragic fate is a result of the selfishness and greed of the other characters in the play. It is clear that, as Shakespeare explores the issues of selfishness and selflessness, the play develops and the plot becomes more complex and interesting, eventually coming to a heartbreaking climax. The selfless in this play are overcome by the selfish. Their lives are destroyed. What is most interesting is that all those who are selfish destroy their own lives, and Lear, Goneril, Regan and Edmund all perish. As an audience, we are forced to think deeper about such extremities, and remind that no good will ever come from selfishness or greed. And so our final piece brings us to the final moments, the moments when Lear has completed this epic journey, the moment when he comes to nothing. This is a strange and remarkable piece of writing. Rather like the, the scene where Edgar fools uh, Gloucester into believing he's on the top of the cliff, there's something very modern about the way this scene is written. In this play, the hero doesn't have a great death speech. There's no moment when he suddenly pronounces the end. There's no perfect conclusion. It's like a clock winding down. It's like a clockwork toy slowly running out of power. It's like something just reaching the end of its time. Lear enters the stage carrying the body of Cordelia. They were quick enough to prevent him from being hanged, but they couldn't save his daughter. Cordelia is dead. The one thing he had left is gone. She had to die. Had she survived, he would not have achieved that state of nothingness. He brings her on knowing that she's dead, hoping that she's not, because his heart hasn't quite broken yet. Cordelia, Cordelia, stay a little. Uh, what is thou sayest? Her voice was ever soft, gentle and low, an excellent thing in a woman. I killed thy slave that was hanging thee. Her voice was ever soft, gentle and low, an excellent thing in woman. To him she was the perfection of womankind. I killed the slave that was a hanging thee, an eighty-year-old man, enraged so much that he could kill a soldier. It's a remarkable moment. Tis true, my lords, he did. Did I not, fellow? I have seen the day with my good biting falchion. I would have made him skip. I am old now, and these same crosses spoil me. Who are you? My eyes are not all the best. I'll tell you straight. If fortune brag of two she loved and hated, one of them we behold. This is a dull sight. Are you not Kent? The same, your servant Kent. Where is your servant Caius? He's a good fellow, I can tell you that. He'll strike, and quickly too. He's dead and rotten. No, my good lord. I am the very man. I'll see that straight. He doesn't actually understand it. I'll see that straight. I'll try to work that out. He can't even believe the Caius is still alive. He's reached a point when everything is just disappearing from him. It's like the whole of his world has become like a handful of sand that's running out through his fingers. Everybody he knew is gone. Everybody that he valued has disappeared. His fool is dead. Cordelia is gone. It's all disappearing. That, from your first of difference and decay, have followed your sad steps. You are welcome hither. Nor no man else. All's cheerless, dark and deadly. Your eldest daughters have foredone themselves, and desperately are dead. Aye, so I think. He knows not what he sees, and vain is it that we present us to him. Very bootless. Edmund is dead, my lord. That's but a trifle here. The fact that Edmund is dead is now a trifle. The man who a few moments ago could have been king is dead and nobody cares. Everything is disappearing. Everything is running away. You lords and noble friends know our intent. What comfort to this great decay may come shall be applied. 
For us, we will resign during the life of this old majesty, to him our absolute power. You to your rights will boot on such addition as your honours have more than merited. All friends shall taste the wages of the virtue and all foes the cup of their deservings. O see, see. And my poor fool is hanged. No, no, no life. Notice that repetition. And my poor fool is hanged. No, no, no life. Lear is coming to those absolute certainties of completion. Why should a dog, a horse, a rat of life, and thou's no breath at all? Thou will come no more. Never, 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 never. Interesting. Five times. He says it five times. Why? Because Shakespeare is trying to demonstrate to us with one single word what never actually means. It is eternity. It is forever. It's not never, 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 never. It's not some magic neverland. This is about eternity. Thou come no more. Never. 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 They're like hammer blows. Pray you undo this button. Thank you, sir. Do you see this? Look on her. Look. Her lips. Look there. Look there. And nothing else. Look on her lips. Look there. Look there. The clockwork has finally run out. In that moment, Lear doesn't simply die. Lear stops being. He has reached the final point of nothing. And thank you to Diane, Sharon, Danica, Sinead and Lisa. My name is Kevin Carberry from St. Mel's College, Longford. I'm going to talk about the image of nothing in Shakespeare's King Lear. The word nothing appears over 30 times in the play, so it's an important image. Nothing shall come of nothing, Lear says to Cordelia in the love test. She loves her father dearly and has nothing more to add. Lear's view of nothing is lack of status and material wealth, being cut off without her inheritance. Ironically, nothing for Cordelia will turn out to be everything. Lear will realise that her qualities of honour, loyalty and integrity, which he thought were nothing, are, in fact, all important. When Gloucester asks Edmund what he is trying to hide in Act 1, Scene 2, Edmund replies, nothing. However, out of this, nothing emerges, the blinding of Gloucester and the death of Edmund. The word is also used to describe man's emptiness and lack of substance. The fool says to Lear, I am a fool, thou art nothing, and thou hast paired thy wit of both sides, and left nothing in the middle. Lear underlines nothingness in his final speech. My poor fool hangs no, no, no life. Thou wilt come no more. Never, 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 never. My name is Colm Lauder and I'm a sixth year student at Belvedere College. My favourite quotation of the play is, Which of you shall we say that love us most? King Lear puts this question to his three daughters, Regan, Gonorrhea and Cordelia, in Act 1, Scene 1. In my opinion, it's one of the most influential lines in the play. Is a fundamental flaw in the language of this question that causes Lear's later downfall and leads to a disastrous division of his kingdom. Lear should have said, which of you doth love us most? The inclusion of shall we say is the flaw. It gives the impression that Lear may have phrased the question as if he wanted to be flattered and lied to. Regan and Galarel immediately show a willingness to lie in order to exploit Lear's gullible character. However, Cordelia notices this flaw and refuses to speak. Lear does not realise his mistake and foolishly exiles his beloved daughter. I'm Sarah Morris from Royal Community School and the quotation I picked is I love him according to my bond, no more nor less. I picked this quotation from the love test as I think it shows how truthful Cordelia is. She cannot lie to her father like her sisters do. She expects Lear to know how much she loves him, like a daughter should love her father, and she is not going to change this just to get more of the kingdom. Cordelia is pure of heart and this is clearly portrayed in this quotation. My name is Kate Ferguson, I'm a student in Wesley College and I'm going to talk about the subplot in King Lear. A subplot enhances any work and can have many functions. Another storyline, another set of characters naturally adds interest and colour to a work as well as giving us another perspective and a new outlook. In a dramatic work such as King Lear, it is only natural that we compare the subplot to the main plot and contrast the fate of the protagonist in Lear with that of his counterpart in Gloucester. 
By its very name, a subplot aims to remain beneath the main plot. Its function is to offer depth to the overall story, while remaining, very obviously, in its shadow. There are striking parallels between main plot and subplot in King Lear. Lear and Gloucester are both old men with children. There is no mention of either of them having a wife. Therefore, their very family situation places them both in a position of power and authority. There are many themes central to both the main plot and subplot, which affect both Lear and Gloucester's ultimate suffering. Lear's banishing of Cordelia is a most obvious comparison to Gloucester's shunning of his innocent, legitimate son Edgar. Both of these actions act as a catalyst to events that contribute to their suffering subsequently. In banishing his most loving, honest daughter, Lear places himself more and more beneath the influences of his two older and treacherous daughters, Goneril and Regan. In the same way, as Gloucester rejects Edgar, the scheming, manipulative, illegitimate brother Edmund takes his place. Lear and Gloucester, through their foolish actions, become trapped by the deceit, power-driven and malignant actions of their less loyal offspring. Sibling rivalry in both the main plot and the subplot is extremely obvious. Both Lear and Gloucester fail to see the truth behind their children's nature, and their mistakes have lasting consequences. In Act 4, Scene 5, there is a striking parallel in the two stories. Gloucester, who has been blinded by Cornwall and ridiculed with Regan's dismissal, let him smell his way to Dover, is led by his loyal son Edgar, who is disguised as Mad Tom. He is walking along flat ground, but comes to believe he is climbing a slope. Edgar says, Horrible steep, look how we labour. Lear is also a vulnerable, pathetic figure in the storm. His prophecy to the fool, Fool, I shall go mad, has come true, and in this scene we find him ranting and raving as a bare-forked animal. In this scene, both characters make realisations and gain insights that are central to the morale and lesson of the work. The theme of sight plays a vital role in the lives of Gloucester and Lear. Throughout the play, there are constant references to sight and what true sight really is. Kent, early on, urges Lear to see better. Gloucester, in his blindness, does a huge injustice to Edgar. In the subplot, blindness becomes even more of a blatant theme than in the main plot, in my opinion. There is certainly an ironic dimension to both Gloucester's blindness and Lear's madness. The meeting of the subplot and main plot is demonstrated in Gloucester's hopeless line, It is nature's curse when madmen lead the blind. Gloucester and Lear are both stripped of everything they have. They are both rejected, cast out by people they thought they could trust. Both characters brought this on themselves by failing to see what was good and rejecting truth and honour. They suffer a similar fate with definite parallels, but I feel that in a tragic dimension, it is their end that dramatically separates the power of subplot and main plot. While Gloucester, we are told, dies happily, in Edgar's favour, and cleansed by his forgiveness, Lear's final suffering is far more heartbreaking. It has been said that the true definition of tragedy is lost potential. This is very true in King Lear. Lear's tragedy is that as soon as he identifies goodness, it disappears with Cordelia's death. Gloucester dies perhaps a happy man, but he is most definitely a broken man. Shakespeare's subplot deepens our understanding of tragedy, human error, treachery and suffering. He draws unforgettable parallels between Lear and Gloucester that each in turn contextualises the other's plight. Both subplot and mainplot leave a glimmer of hope in their conclusion, namely Edgar's survival and Cordelia's legacy, as well as the unity in Albany and Kent. Edgar's final words apply equally to mainplot and subplot. Speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. My name is Lillian Kavner and I'm a teacher of English at Santa Sabina in Sutton. It's necessary, obviously, to get organised beforehand and know what's in store for you on the day, as soon as it's your first paper in June. Your exam time for paper two is three hours and 20 minutes. So if you are answering on King Lear in the single text question, you will have approximately an hour to answer this question. The single text question carries 60 marks, which is 15% of the total marks. You will be presented with two questions in the exam. You only have to do one of these. Questions are set on characters, relationships, different themes, imagery and the language used in the play. 
In your reading of King Lear, you have, of course, become familiar with the different themes. For example, love versus hate, good versus evil, justice and redemption, ingratitude, selfishness, appearance versus reality. You will also be able to discuss the characters that Shakespeare presents us with in the play and the relationships that exist between the different characters. In your answer, you must avoid retelling the story of the play and engage clearly and purposefully with the set task in the King Lear question. 18 out of the 60 marks is awarded for this in your answer. 18 marks is also awarded for coherence of delivery. It is necessary to sustain this response in an appropriate manner over the entire answer. A student is expected to show that they can manage and control language appropriate to the task, which is marked out of 18 also. And finally, students will be awarded a total of six marks for their accuracy in spelling and grammar, appropriate to the required register in their chosen King Lear question. And so we come to our King Lear quiz. Uh, we have a representative from each of our participating schools. From Moyne, we have Jonathan Coppinger. St. Mel's gives us Neil Keenan. Esther Okonoa from Skolwira. And from Carrigallan, we have Arlene McIntyre. Welcome. Now, I'm going to ask each one of you a separate question, and you can get two points for the answer. Jonathan, we'll start with you. Have a listen to this. Backdoor, you cannot see your way. I have no way, and therefore want no eyes. I stumbled when I saw. Now, two characters. Who is speaking? Gloucester and the Old Man. Gloucester and the Old Man. Very good. Tricky one. <laughs> Neil, it's your question. Have a listen to this. I have been worth the whistle. You are not worth the dust which the old wind blows in your face. Who is speaking to who? Uh, Albany de Goneril. Well done. Esther, your turn. Have a listen. Oh, you kind gods. Cure this great breach in his abused nature, the untuned and jarring senses, or wind up of this child-changed father. Now, who speaks those lines, and who was with her? Um, Cordelia to Kent. Well, Cordelia was there, and so was Kent, so I'll give you the two points for that one. I could be tricky and say who was playing the lute in the background, but I won't. <laughs> and now, last question here for in this round for Arlene. Have a listen to this. ...of my soul, you twain rule in this realm, and the god states sustain. I have a journey, sir, shortly to go. My master calls me. I must not say no. And which two characters were speaking there? Uh, Kent and Gloucester. One point. It was Kent and Albany. Mm. Well done. And now we move on to our button, press the button round. Have you all got your fingers ready? Hovering over the buttons. Here we go. When Leah Kent and the Fool arrive at the hovel, who's already there? And that was Jonathan. Poor Tom. Poor Tom. Well done. <laughs> what does Edgar, poor Tom, same person, say that he did before he became a madman? And that was Arlene. He was a servant. Well done, a serving man. What warning does Gloucester give Kent regarding Lear at the farmhouse? And that was Jonathan back in now with a vengeance. Um, that there's a plot to kill him. A plot to kill? Uh, Lear. Yes, well done. Amen. How is Gloucester punished for his treachery? Uh, that, was, uh, that was Neil from St. Mel's. Uh, they broke out his eyes. Well done. <laughs> One more question. For what purpose does Cordelia return from France? Uh, that was Neil again. Uh, to restore Lear's king. To restore King Lear to the throne. Well done. We've now got a tie. Jonathan and Neil are now tying with four points each. So this is the tiebreaker. So only you two can answer this one, OK? When King Lear wakes up in the French camp, what does he think she sees? That's uh, Jonathan. A spirit. A spirit, that's right. Yeah. Jonathan, Jonathan, with some obvious fans behind me, Jonathan, you're the winner of that round. So congratulations to Moyne on winning our final quiz. That brings to an end our Lear from Longford. We hope you've enjoyed it. We hope you've learned something from it. 
We hope that it's been of value to you. In the meantime, keep reading Shakespeare. Thank you and good night. That was Lear in Longford. The production team was Catherine Brennan, Angus McAnally, Siobhan Mannion, and Kevin Reynolds. On sound were Tony Lyons and Eddie O'Halloran. And our special thanks to the teachers, staff, and students of St. Mel's College in Skullwira in Longford, Carrigallan Vocational School in County Leitrim, and Moyne Community School. Come, let's away to prison. We two alone will sing like birds of the cage. Take them away! Like a desert needs rain, like a town needs a name, need your love. I hold you but a subject of this war, not as a brother. Like a drift needs rain, not so hot. I need your love. Edmund, I arrest thee on capital treason. Call by the trumpet! I need you. Thou art a traitor, false to thy gods, thy brother and thy father. A most cold-spotted traitor! Trumpet! Like a rhythm unbroken, like drums in the night, like sweet soul music, like sunlight. He hath commissioned from thy wife and me to hang Cordelia in the prison to lay the blame her own despair. Pray you, undo this button.